The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English Justin Jackson picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E. Hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. Welcome to the Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education Podcast, bringing you insight into classical education and its unique emphasis on human virtue and moral character, responsible citizenship, content-rich curricula, and teacher-led classrooms. Now your host, Scott Bertram. Thanks for listening. The Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education Podcast is part of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. More episodes at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you find your audio. You also can find more information on topics and ideas discussed on this show at our website, k12.hillsdale.edu. We continue our series of episodes from presentations delivered at the Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence Seminar on the Art of Teaching, Children's Literature. The Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence is an outreach of the Hillsdale College K-12 Education Office, offering seminars in classical academics and pedagogy for teachers nationwide of any background. Seminars are led by the faculty, leadership, and master teachers of Hillsdale College, There is no cost to attend, and attendees may earn professional development credits. Currently, the Hoagland Center is hosting a series of events on the art of teaching. February 29th and March 1st in Grand Rapids, Michigan, is the Art of Teaching, the Sciences. And April 11th and 12th in Ann Arbor, Michigan, is the Art of Teaching, American History. To learn more and register, please visit the webpage for the Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence at k12.hillsdale.edu. Click the Events tab and look for Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence. In September 2023, Dr. Benedict Whalen, Associate Professor of English at Hillsdale College, spoke to a gathering of teachers and school leaders in an address titled, How to Teach a Poem. My talk this morning is on how to teach a poem, and uh, I thought the best way to begin that is with reading a poem. Now, I just handed out a poem to you all, but I'm going to come to that one at the end. Uh, there was a little sheet uh, insert in your folder this morning that you had that accompanies my talk, and it has Robert Frost's little lyric, Nothing Gold Can Stay. I'd like to begin this talk by looking at that, so if, you'll, if you could pull that out as well. So I'd like to begin just by reading uh, Frost's Frost little lyric here. I'm going to read it a couple of times and make a couple of brief observations, uh, and then I'll get into the body of my talk. Nothing Gold Can Stay, by Robert Frost. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, 
So dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. This is a brief observation. We learn when we finally come to the end that the title is repeated in the final line. So we actually hear that, that line twice, nothing gold can stay. Just a couple of features that jump out at us uh, in this poem. The lines are all very short. We have a mere eight lines, and each line itself is only about six syllables long. Let's read the poem one more time. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. What else might we observe just at first blush? The poem, clearly as we've heard it a second time, is made up of rhyming pairs of lines, and the rhymes are very simple and straightforward. Gold, hold, flower, hour, leaf, grief, day, stay. Might also notice just grammatically about the poem that uh, it consists of five sentences. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. That's one sentence. They're simple, direct, declarative sentences. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf. It's an interestingly short sentence there in the center of the poem. So Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. I'm going to come back to this poem uh, at, the end of my, at the end of my talk. Uh, what am I going to speak with you all about? How to teach a poem? I have three main points uh, to this talk. The first is I'm going to be a little bit abstract to begin with and uh, ask the question, what is poetry? And then from that, I'll think about uh, briefly turning to the question of then what is the place of poetry, lyric poetry in, uh, specifically, uh, in the literature classroom? And then finally, from those two places, then how should we, how should we teach poetry? And we'll return to Frost Lyric. So to take my, take my first question, what, what is poetry? Uh, here, of course, I'm, I'm talking of good or true poetry. And I, I'll begin by saying a couple of things of what poetry, lyric poetry is not. Lyric poetry is not a poet's attempt to make a point. It's not argumentative in its essence. Some lyric poems will make arguments, but lyric poetry itself is not argumentative, essentially. It's not dialectical. It's not, it does not, in its essence, develop a logical argument. It is not staking out a political or philosophical position. A joke I'll have with my students is that lyric poetry is not, it's not a weapons delivery system for a philosophy, right? It's not just the way to convey that philosophy. Uh, lyric poetry is not a poet's attempt to state something in difficult or convoluted language. Uh, it's not simply dressing something up with ornate language and rhymes. And it's not, finally, and I think this is maybe the most important point for us, it's not, lyric poetry is not, simply a puzzle to be solved by readers. It is not in its essence a puzzle. What is lyric? If that's what it's not, what is it? A lyric poem is a work of art that takes language as its medium, right? As its medium, the stuff that it consists of. A lyric poem is, is a work of art that takes language as its medium. Now, language as the medium, the stuff that this work of art consists of, that entails great complexity. Uh, because it involves words, language. And words, of course, have meanings, right? They engage our intellect, our reason right away. 
But words also have sounds and rhythms that are natural to the language, and they have grammatical rules and structures and customs and conventions that govern a language. All of that is also part of the verbal art of a lyric poem. This means that, to me, when we're reading or listening to a poem, we are not immediately, if it's a work of art, the posture that we should have, the approach, the attitude to reading a poem is not immediately to figure it out. Again, it's not a, it's not a puzzle that we're trying to solve. It's a work of art that we're encountering. The Roman poet Horace, in his great work, The Ars Poetica, uh, used the phrase that is a guiding light for me in teaching lyric poetry. He said, ut pictura poesis. That is, an, as in painting, so in poetry. And I like to think of this, and in my own literature classroom, learn from my colleagues in the fine arts how they might approach the teaching of a painting, and to try to learn from them and have that guide and inform my approach to a poem. So we might, might think of this. When we first approach a, 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 a painting, I don't think we immediately think that we're going to solve the puzzle of the painting. We don't immediately scrutinize it for meaning. What does this painting mean? Though I think often, if we're being honest, we, we do that with lyric poetry. What, what is this poet saying? What does he mean? What does this lyric mean? I, I'm arguing that that's actually not the proper first posture and approach to a, to a lyric. When we, when we look at a painting for the first time, instead we, I think if, if we imagine the last time we went to the Detroit Institute of Arts at the Metropolitan Art Museum, we turn the corner, we see a painting, and we, we allow the painting simply to make an impression on us. We have a sort, of, a sort of passive and receptive posture and attitude towards the painting. We allow our eye to wander around it, observing different elements. Maybe the frame of the painting is the first thing we notice, or the color scheme before we even see the particular figures in the color. We might notice the brush strokes, the direction, the focal point of the painting. Uh, and all of that, I think, precedes any sort of analytic approach or historical understanding or contextualization of the painting. I remember distinctly when I first saw the great painting by Jules Lepage in the Metropolitan Art Museum of Joan of Arc. I don't know if you're familiar with this painting. It's a massive painting. It fills a large part of the wall and it sits there in a, in a lovely gold frame and the, the moment of Joan of, uh, that Lepage captures is when St. Joan of Arc has already had these visions and these voices that she's hearing counseling her, but it's before she's entered the public sphere. And so it's a rural setting and Joan is standing there in front of a thatched hut with, she's barefoot in peasant's garb uh, and there are plants and there's vegetation all around her. And uh, Joan has this incredible face and she is looking off into the distance struck and you can see that she's having this uh, sort of ecstatic encounter. And then as you study the painting, you can actually see there are these three saintly figures, uh, uh, sort of transparent, but there that you can see that are counseling, counseling Joan. When I, I remember distinctly when I saw this absolutely lovely, stunning painting, when I first saw it, I had no idea who it was about or what it was of. It was simply beautiful. It simply grabbed me. 
I, I, I was moved by it, and then I studied it, and as I watched, then I saw, I noticed Joan's bare feet, and then I saw her in relation to these figures that eventually I made out in the painting, and then I finally walked up to the, the label and saw, oh my goodness, this is Joan of Arc. This is that moment in, in her life, and then I, then I stepped back, and I thought, oh, what is Lepage saying about Joan of Arc? Right? Well, he's definitely endorsing that she has this heavenly vision, that she's being informed and, and guided by these saints. And uh, there's more we might say. My point is that that's actually, that's the natural way we encounter paintings. First of all, simply to let it make an impression on us, to notice things, and then we get closer to it. We might back up some more and, and, and start to understand it in its historical and philosophical context. Poetry, lyric poetry, I, I want to suggest, is, is like this. A lyric poem is a complete work of art, which with all of the different elements uh, associated with language constitute its being. And those different elements associated with it include the meaning of words, but it also includes the sound, the rhythm, the grammatical placement, etc. And all of those are essential and meaningful to this complete work of art. Now this understanding of poetry has some implications. Uh, for how we should teach poetry. It also has some implications for the place of poetry in a literature classroom. So I'd like to talk about that for a moment before then I speak more directly of how, how to speak, how, how to teach poetry. What's the place of poetry in the literature classroom? Well, if poetry is a work of art that takes language as its medium, then poetry is concerned with truth but it's concerned with truth not as philosophical argument or logic is concerned with truth. It's concerned with truth in the way that art expresses and captures, reproduces, presents to us the truth. Because, and, and I'm going to reason a little bit more about this, because poetry is an art with language as its medium, it is immediately intellectual. It's an immediately intellectual form of art because language speaks to our reason, to our intellects immediately. We can immediately reason about the words, about the sense, what is being conveyed there. So because art is, because poetry is an art with language as its medium, it's immediately intellectual and hence has to do essentially with how we come to know the truth. But because it's an art and not simply an argument, it's also essentially concerned with the beautiful. This, this is the distinctive feature and place of lyric poetry then, that it is at once both inherently and automatically intellectual because, as, at, because language is its very medium, it engages our intellect. But because it's an art, it is also inherently tied to that which is beautiful. So the, lyric poetry then is, is the one subject that we have that inherently is tied to both the true and the beautiful. And of course, the true and the beautiful, these transcendentals participate in the good. Uh, as a teacher, in a very abstract way, I'm always interested in bringing my students to consider the good, the true, and the beautiful. Lyric poetry is essentially and, and deeply, by its very nature, anchored to that. For me then, that means that lyric poetry is not, and now I'm, I'm pushing back a little bit even here against uh, certain classes that I was in and ways that I've seen poetry treated in American education, that lyric poems are often uh, sort of a side issue in our literature classroom, um, that, that lyric poetry might be something we have on a poster or something we do for the last five minutes of class before recess or some little nice 
cute ornament that we, we sort of surround our students with that's not really a focal point of our study, but instead a little leaven, a little addition to our literature classroom. And I want to suggest that that's, that's misunderstanding the nature of poetry and what lyric poetry can do for us, the way we ought to, to use it. Poetry is not a side issue in a literature class. It's, it's not a nice sounding thing that we might read a little bit of as a supplement to the more serious study of history or philosophy or mathematics. Instead, it's an extremely lofty art that with language as its medium engages the very highest faculties of the human person and it engages those faculties in direct relation to the beautiful. This is a good in itself. It's a good for students in our classrooms and to engage them on their very highest levels with a direct line to that which is beautiful. It's not a side issue. It's central, I think, to any education that wants to form whole human persons uh, and bring them into a loving relation to the good, the true, and the beautiful. Okay, so a, a little bit about what lyric poetry is and then its place in the classroom, that it should not be ancillary, accidental, off to the side, but instead should have a central, uh, dignified, lofty place uh, in, in, our, in our curricula and, and classrooms. So then how should we teach poetry though? If it's, if it's got this nature that presents certain difficulties, I've already said we shouldn't treat it as a puzzle. So how, how do we treat lyric poetry? On the handout I gave you, I included this quote from T.S. Eliot that uh, Eliot said, genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. I think that's worth wondering about. Uh, I think that's worth pondering, that genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. If I, if I go back to my, my sort of, uh, my example of Lepage's Joan of Arc, certainly paintings communicate before they're understood, right? To encounter a great painting, to be moved by its beauty, to be impressed by it, to, to wonder at it, to be filled with questions about it, that all happens before I even know that this painting is about Joan of Arc. I don't understand the painting in any, any real way, and yet it has communicated something to me. It has moved me in some way, and it has, it has started this sort of intellectual activity, this, this wonderment uh, and, and encounter. So genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. So this to me tells me that our goal in teaching and studying lyric poetry is not primarily to analyze it. I know this is counterintuitive for teachers and especially for me. Uh, maybe I'm just speaking to myself as a college professor. You get in the college classroom, you've got all these very bright and motivated students. They are very, very good at analyzing, right? Give them a work of art, say, what, what does this mean? And they start to, start to pick it apart. I, I think that's the wrong approach. And I think we can, we can model a better one for our students. Our first goal with lyric poetry is not analysis. Instead, as we learn from paintings, uh, we should let it speak to us, make an impression upon us, communicate to us. And again, communication sometimes comes through the meaning of the words, but sometimes it comes through the sounds, the rhythms, the arrangement of the language the way in which, for instance, expected grammatical forms might be broken. That doesn't have to do with the actual meaning of the words, but it is essential to the work of the poem. So what does this mean? 
when we're first teaching a lyric poem, when we're introducing our students to a lyric, the first thing to do is to read it aloud. S seriously, it's, it's, it's remarkable to me how many literature classrooms I've sat in on where we jump that very first step, we skip it, reading the poem aloud. That's the first encounter with the poem. That's the first moment in which it touches us, is just to hear it, to hear its words with their meaning, yes, but also the sounds, the rhythms, the rhymes, the tone, etc. What I like to do in my classroom is to read the poem aloud, and then I might observe one thing about the poem. I might say, oh, that's interesting. The title, Nothing Gold Can Stay, is repeated as the final line of this poem. But then after that, I might ask Susie, would you please read the poem again to us? And then we'll hear Susie read the poem. And I'll say, Susie, is there maybe one thing that you might observe about this poem? She might say, well, the lines are really short. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Then I'll say, oh, yeah, these are short lines. Okay, Bob, will you read the poem to us? And my goal here, again, is we're, we're thinking about it. We're letting it communicate something to us. We're, we're letting it make an impression on us before we pull out our intellectual analytical scalpels and make incisions and start to unpack the poem. Well before we do analytic work with lyric poetry, I think we should have heard that poem many times. We should have encountered the work as a whole and complete unified work of art before we start to pull it apart. Many of us might be familiar with William Wordsworth's worry. William Wordsworth, great romantic uh, British poet. He worried, in one of his poems, he meditates on the fact that the phrase he uses is, we murder to dissect. And, and what he means by that is we, we will look at, say, a dog, and we want to know how do the organs of this dog, this living thing, how do they keep it alive? Right? How, how does all of the parts of this dog contribute to this whole live thing? And so Wordsworth marvels at the fact that to arrive at that understanding, then we go and kill the dog to dissect it. We murder it to dissect it to understand then how all those parts contributed to the living whole. And Wordsworth thought, this, this, is, this is insane that we would murder to dissect, to try to understand the whole better, we will kill it, to rip it apart, to see it in its little parts. And I, I'm sure uh, I have many times, uh, even in my own teaching, known when I'm dealing with a poem that, oh, there, I just murdered this work of literature to dissect it with my students. I, in particular, I'm a Shakespeare scholar. I, along with Claudius, have murdered Hamlet many times, right? It just is... You can, you can tell by the end of a class period that Hamlet's lying there and the parts are strewn across the classroom and, and you've done a Shakespearean tragedy uh, even in your teaching. This is, uh, this is the great danger and, and it's that murdering to dissect is, sits very close to the, the analytic activity of, 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 of humans approaching these arts and these poetry that we, we get our analytical scalpels out and we start to pull it apart. Okay, let's pull this lyric apart. Instead of allowing it to impress its whole complete being as a work of art upon us. So my great fear always is, will I murder to dissect? And to, to protect myself and my class from that, my goal when I'm introducing a lyric poem is, is not simply to read it and then analyze it, but to delay the analytic mode. We are going to pull the poem apart. We will finally lift the hood and look at it and see how it works, but I want to delay that. I want us to 
really become familiar and have an intimate knowledge of the thing as a whole before we start to look at its parts. Good. So when we discuss the poem, don't treat it like a puzzle. We might just share observations like, oh, short lines. Oh, this line is repeated. Oh, I hear this sound repeated again and again. I, I will often ask, again, delaying that analytic mode, I'll often ask my students about the tone and the sounds and the structure of the poem before I'm ever attending to the sense of the words itself, the actual meaning. That's because that's where we slip into the analytic, analytic mode. There are more tips I might give on that in, in a final point, but so if we're, again, trying to treat it as a whole, as a whole that is beautiful and has an integrity to it that we should know before we analyze and dissect and pull apart, then one great advantage, one, one great uh, uh, approach is memorization. Um, I, I can't emphasize this enough, that simply memorizing a poem is actually treating it in this way we've just discussed, as a whole work of art, with language as its medium, with all the different aspects of that that language entails, we are placing that within our minds when we memorize it. So we memorize poetry not simply for memory training. This isn't uh, sort of job preparation down the road. It's not like memorizing dates or facts. Instead, when we're memorizing a poem, we're placing a work of art within our mind. And this, this is worth wondering about and meditating on. It, it, poetry really is, is the one form of art that we can truly place in its entirety and in its integrity within our intellects, within our minds. I can remember Lepage's Joan of Arc, right? but I can't remember it in its perfection and know it entirely. Right? It's, it's still a faulty memory. But I can, in fact, place an entire uh, lyric within my intellect. So I am populating my intellect with whole, integral, beautiful works of art. How to memorize. I have a, a tip on this. Don't send the students home. Okay, memorize the first five lines of this sonnet. Do on Tuesday, I'm going to quiz you. Instead, I would encourage you to use what, what I call the oral or aural method. That is, when, with my students, when I teach them, uh, nature's first green is gold, I will ask them to put the poem away so they're not even looking at it, and then I will say the first line to them, and they will say it back to me, and I will say it, and they will say it back, and we'll bounce the line back and forth between each other three or four times, and then I'll move on to the second line, and we'll do that three or four times, then I'll move back to the first line once or twice, back to the second line, and then we'll put the two together, and then we'll move forward. Now, I, I think to a, in a, a world concerned about productivity and learning outcomes, and what do we gain, what does this produce for us, this would seem like a terrible waste of class time, right? It, it, what, are, what are we learning? This, go have them memorize it on your own time. Your time with the students is precious. Why would you spend valuable class time just saying the lines back and forth to each other? But again, if poetry is what I've said it is, then this is encountering the poem in its true, in its true nature. And that simply having us hear these lines of poetry repeated is to allow it to communicate to us, is allow it to make an impression upon us, to form us in some way prior to that, that analytic work that we might do where we really try to enter into a, a deeper, rational, intellectual, analytical understanding of the thing. It is good, to put it in another way, uh, last night John was quoting from uh, Pieper's Leisure, the Basis of Culture. This is also good because 
as you just sit with your students and you start to bounce lines of poetry back and forth between you, that's leisurely. You actually open, you slow things down and you open a space in the classroom where suddenly we're just listening and hearing and saying these really beautiful lines. We're encountering a great work in a leisurely manner that opens up the field for wonder. It allows for that wonderful encounter and, and, and serves the, the work of art properly. It saves us from treating the poem simply as data that we're trying to master. Instead, it leaves it in its, in its whole. Um, finally, I would just say uh, with this method, students really enjoy it. They, they really do. Uh, I, I find, and, and I, I know I, I teach college students, but uh, my oldest son, Clement, is uh, 10, just about 11. And then his younger brother, Lawrence, right below him, he's, he's nine. They love to recite little lyrics and ditties back and forth to each other. Children are always sort of bombolating, making little sounds. They love the, the very sounds and shapes of words. And that's, and that's good. Join, join them with that, where you throw lines of poetry back, back and forth. I, I also, it, it's a, it, you cultivate a love uh, for, for these good things. I, I remember when my oldest son was only three years old and he was sitting at the table with, with my second son, who was just two. They had been reading some Edward Lear and the Owl and the Pussycat, if we know that poem. And my son didn't even know what the words meant, but at one point, angry with his, his brother, he, he said, you elegant fowl. Right? <laughs> he thought, there was, I thought that was an insult. Um, but, but the words had sunk in in some way and, and had captured his sense. It was just the very way the words worked that he liked. And that, that sort of natural human love for and attraction to the sounds and shapes of words is what I want to plug in to. I want to cultivate, foster, work with that when I'm reading uh, lyric poetry. Good. Uh, okay, so may we, uh, if, if you will, turn back then to Nothing Gold Can Stay. Let's read it once again. We've, we've allowed it to make an impression upon us. We've read it a couple of times. Let's hear the words one more time. Nothing Gold Can Stay. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. After I've spent this time with these students, and, and maybe it depends on how often you're meeting with your students, if you're meeting with them every day of the week, I might give them this poem and just read through it three or four times the first day, and then we'll just put it away. We won't really discuss it. We won't try to pull it apart at all. I might just put it away, and I might do that for three or four days in a row before finally, when we really have some familiarity with the poem, I might say, let's, let's talk about this. So, well, what, what is going on in this poem? What does it mean to say nature's first green is gold? Or, or what's, what's the poet's conception? And I obviously can't do that with you all right now, but I would like to work through the poem a little bit with you and just, just look at it line by line and make some observations. Nature's first green is gold. It's very interesting to, to look at this with students and say, what, what is our poet saying there? Nature's first green is gold. I'll often ask, is green gold? No. Okay, so our poet is just uttering nonsense to begin, right? We just start with nonsense. And students know, well, it's probably not nonsense if he's handing it to me, so there's going to be something here. So what, what does it mean to say that nature's first green is gold? Oh, it, it, must, 
It must be a metaphor. The only way that's an intelligible statement is immediately to switch from simply literal descriptive declarative to a metaphorical mode of thought, right? Nature's first green is gold is intelligible, but only through metaphor. What does it mean that nature's first green, what's a first green? I'll ask my students, they'll start, right? And they've, they've already maybe memorized the poem. It's already sitting in their mind, but what is a first green? Are that those early things in nature, those first leaves, those most precious things, nature's early little things. We can think of the, 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 the leaves coming, coming out on the branches in the spring. Nature's first green is gold. What does that mean? And students, oh, it's precious. Nature's first green is gold. It's a, it's a precious thing. Those early things are precious. Okay, next line. Her hardest hue to hold. What does that mean? It's the, literally the hardest color to hang on to. Okay. Nature's first green is gold. Why is it her hardest hue to hold? We already have a question. We're already thinking metaphorically. We already have a question, something to wonder about with the poet. Move forward. Her early leaf's a flower. Is a leaf a flower? No. Our, po our poet is speaking nonsense. No. He's returned in the third line to the activity, uh, the, 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 the mental activity that he encouraged in the first line. That we flip into metaphorical thought again. Her early leaf's a flower. A leaf is not a flower, but the early leaf, what is a flower? Very delicate, beautiful, ornate, impressive thing in nature. It's a, a splendor of nature. Her early leaves, this splendid ornament of nature, one of these most beautiful things we find in nature. Those early things, again, the early leaf, the first green, the early leaf. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. And we look, oh, it's only so an hour. We've returned to the second line her hardest hue to hold. These things go away. We, we can't hang on to it. Her early leaf's a flower, but it only lasts an hour. Okay? So at this point, then, I might pause in the poem and say, well, why is our poet telling us this? What, what is he thinking about? And following uh, uh, Dr. Gregg's uh, lecture yesterday, you'll get a wild variety of responses here. But again, I, I would encourage you to linger with the poem here to linger with those questions, to wonder and say, don't, let's, before we look ahead, we might, what is the impression this poem has made? What is the, what is the poet saying? What, and how has, how has he said it? Uh, one of the things that we notice is that he's said it uh, very simply. And the simplicity of the tone of this poem is one of its essential features. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. At this point, I often have students realizing almost all of the words are monosyllabic. Uh, the, 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 the lines are short, but the words themselves are short. The rhymes are simple, not complex. Uh, they're very direct. We have short, direct statements, short, direct words, short, clear rhymes. Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf. And that's its own sentence. Right? Our, our first two couplets there were sentences. Now we have just a single line sentence. Then leaf subsides to leaf. 
okay, we understand this. Those early first leaves in the spring, they give way to the leaves that, that fill the, the summer's pride, right, that populate the trees. But leaves subsiding to leaf also maybe invokes a vision of the fall where the leaves are subsiding. They're falling down from the trees. We get a carpet of leaves. They're, they're subsiding. Leaf subsides to leaf. One thing gives way to the next thing, to the next thing that replaces it. Then leaf subsides to leaf. So Eden sank to grief. So Eden sank to grief. So, what, what does so mean there? So, finally the students will puzzle to, oh, in like manner. In like manner, Eden sank to grief. And this, this usually then with students is a full stop moment. What's the, what's the poet's claim? Nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. What, Eden sinking to grief. At Hillsdale, our students are very quick to pick up on, uh, oh, this, this, we're talking about original sin, right? The loss of innocence, right? The introduction of sin to the world. Eden sinks to grief uh, is, is man's uh, loss of his initial innocence through violation of divine command. So Eden sank to grief. Right? The, 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 poem, the poem has shifted what it's saying here. How? And, and I, I'll, spend, I'll spend 20 minutes with the students lingering. What, what, what were we talking about before this line and how has this line changed things? Let's go back through the poem. Let's, let's, let's be familiar with it. Nature's first green is gold. Her heart is to hold. Those early things are precious is what he's saying. Rough, bad paraphrase. Those early things are precious and they're hard to hold on to. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf. We have a sense of this. Yes, in nature, these things happen. We, we all understand the passage of time, the loss of those early precious things. But then... So Eden sank to grief. What is the poet saying but that so in like manner Eden sank to grief? The implication is troubling. Uh, there's a theological claim here, in fact. Uh, Frost saying in like manner Eden sank to grief is actually to say, if he's saying just as one leaf gives way to another over the passage of the seasons, in like manner, in such a way, Eden sank to grief, or mankind came to sin, is to say it happens of necessity. By the very nature of things. In the same way we know that nature's first green is the hardest thing to hold on to, and that the early leaf is a flower, but it's only so an hour. Frost is suggesting in like manner, so, early human innocence was lost. Now, my students are often very on fire. Okay, okay, wait, wait. but we know this is true. Children grow up, right? So Eden sinks to grief. Early innocence is lost to, to some degree. But, but that's not quite what Frost said. Frost said, so Eden sank to grief, which means that actually that prelapsarian, naturally innocent state of man was by, his, by its very nature doomed to the fall. It's a sobering and a dark 
uh, difficult theological statement. Now, now we're talking, when we get to so Eden saint to grief, we're talking no longer about nature, right? Uh, or not simply about nature, but, but about human nature. And not just about human nature in one particular life, but of all human nature. How, how, how large a, a thought Frost has contained in such a simple little line. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So, in like manner, so dawn goes down today. Nothing gold can stay. In the same way that the day must follow the dawn, in that way, humans came to sin. In that way, nothing gold can stay. So dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. With this, in this final line, this is another exercise I'll do with students uh, sometimes, nothing gold can stay. I'd ask them, uh, because we want to be attentive to the very particular words that Frost chooses and uses, again, to understand the work in its artistic whole, in its integrity. How, how different would it be if we said, nothing gold does stay? I mean, that's, that's uglier, right? We, you can appreciate the beauty of Frost's statement, nothing gold can stay, but can has slightly a different meaning than does. Does, nothing gold does stay. Nothing gold sticks around is different than nothing gold can stay. Nothing perfect in that innocent state, in that initial state, does, does, can stay. When I've worked through this poem with students, and again, I, I want to leave time for questions, so I'm going to move more quickly here. When I've worked through this poem with students, we get to a quiet point. I don't think many of us share Frost's theological position here, this vision of God and the nature that God made. And, and we end wondering about what he said. At that moment, when you get to that moment with students, rather than trying to, say, resolve it or reduce the poem finally to a thesis, again, as I said, a poem is not a puzzle to be figured out. It is not in its essence an argument conveyed in ornate language trying to persuade us of something. Instead of that, it's a work of art with language as its medium. So when we get to the point where we are, are co contemplating, we're, we're, we're sharing the vision of the poet, and may, maybe even it's a dark vision that might trouble us. At that, at that moment, I would encourage you, then just stop and read through the poem several more times. Let the, let the students again encounter the poem in its whole. It, you'll end up with new questions about it. So if we, if we were to read through the poem now one more time, having maybe walked through by each line, nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold, her early leaves a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. The, the, the best way, I would encourage you, the best way to end a study of a poem like this is to return to the vision of the poem as a whole, not to end the poem with, say, meditating on the thesis or the argument or the statement, the idea conveyed. So I would encourage you after, after working through a poem, then back up with the students, 
read it again, have little Susie or Bobby read it again, or put the poem away and do the oral aural memorization of the poem again. The students will have something to wonder about. It will be planted deep in their minds. They'll carry it with them. The lines will come back unbidden at different moments, different experiences, and it will be a, a repeated and continued source of wonder. A, a repeated thing to, to think about, to contemplate, to, to think with Frost about. Okay, I've used up a lot of my time, and I did give you guys a second handout um, here, and I, I will turn to it for just a moment. I, I do just want to say that it, the, as we turn to Tennyson's, uh, I'm sorry, Longf Longfellow's poem here, <laughs> I, I gave this just as an example, uh, a closing example of, again, T.S. Eliot's statement that genuine poetry communicates before it is understood. I think in the, in the Hillsdale curriculum, we recommend, we have uh, this, this poem, The Tide Rises, The Tide Falls, in, in fourth grade. I think you can teach it to college students, to, to almost any age. This is a poem that I don't think we even need to walk through line by line in any sort of analytic mode. Uh, it's, a, it's an excellent poem that does exactly, I think we'll feel it even as we encounter, that, that does what T.S. Eliot said. Genuine poetry communicates before it is understood. The poem, through its very shape, through the sounds of words and their repetitions, communicates its sense before even we need to do any sort of formal, analytic, rational work with it. So I'll close just by reading this poem, and we'll see that it communicates even before analysis occurs. The tide rises, the tide falls, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. The tide rises, the tide falls. The twilight darkens, the curlew calls. Along the sea sands, damp and brown, the traveler hastens toward the town. And the tide rises, the tide falls. Darkness settles on roofs and walls, but the sea, the sea in the darkness calls. The little waves with their soft white hands efface the footprints in the sands, and the tide rises, the tide falls. The morning breaks, the steeds in their stalls stamp and neigh as the hostler calls. The day returns, but nevermore returns the traveler to the shore, and the tide rises, the tide falls. We, we don't need to know that this was written by Longfellow near the end of his life that at the end of a long, successful poetic career, we have the aged poet uh, perhaps meditating upon the briefness of a human life on its, span, uh, on its span, what it accomplishes, these footprints in the sand, effaced finally by time. We don't, we don't actually need any of that. We don't even need formal analysis. The repetition of the lines, the tide rises, the tide falls, communicates the sense, it recurs the motion of time, the motion of the tide, the repetition of that, that as the, as the permanent thing compared to the traveler who wanders by in the dark. It's, students can understand this and wonder at it and take delight in it without us ever even needing to analyze it in class. So again, how to teach a poem? I would encourage you, just read them with the students. Let them encounter them. You could read this once, put it away, move on to another lesson. You could bring it out once each day for a week and never do formal analysis. And it will communicate and it will be a cause of wonder. It will awaken them. Uh, and I think it will delight them.
That was Dr. Benedict Whalen, Associate Professor of English at Hillsdale College, and his address, How to Teach a Poem, from the September 2023 Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence Seminar on the Art of Teaching Children's Literature. To learn more about the Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence and register for future events, visit the webpage at k12.hillsdale.edu, click the Events tab, and look for Hoagland Center for Teacher Excellence, or write to cte at hillsdale.edu. I'm Scott Bertram. We invite you to like us on Facebook. Search for Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education. You also can follow us on Instagram at Hillsdale underscore K-12. Hillsdale underscore K-12 on Instagram. Thank you for listening to the Hillsdale College K-12 Classical Education Podcast, part of the Hillsdale College Podcast Network. More episodes at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you find your audio. Music